Welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast with your host, Terry Frost. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a two-weekly podcast of classic movie appreciation. The only rule is that the movies must be more than 20 years old. You can leave feedback by emailing feedbackpaleo at gmail.com or by visiting the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. You can also support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema. This podcast may contain adult worlds and concepts, so please enjoy it. Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 223. My name is Terry Frost and this time around we are doing disaster movies. And when I say we, I actually mean we this time because I've got Alex Pierce from Galactic Suburbia helping out. How you doing, Alex? I'm so well, Terry. Thank you for having me on. You've now collected the Galactic Suburbia set. Yes, I have. I've got all the action figures. <laughs> yeah, and um, what, I'm, what I told Tansy when we were down in Hobart, Tansy being one of the other ones along with Alyssa, is that I'm going to go around the circuit again. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah, so it, it won't be over a short period of time, but we'll uh, definitely get the three of you on again. Uh, Tansy wants to do something beside musicals next time, so we should have a bit of fun with it. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do, and then we'll get into the media we've been consuming. Uh, sure. So I'm uh, one third of Galactic Suburbia, as you said. Um, I also do another podcast of my own about food and cooking and those sorts of things. That's called Acts of Kitchen. Uh, when I'm not podcasting, I'm a history teacher and I read a lot and I watch a lot of movies and TV. So that's me, basically. Yeah, you and your husband did a whole series of blogs <laughs> about the James Bond movies. Yes, we did. Uh, a couple of years ago, the Melbourne Museum had uh, a, a big exhibition for, I guess it was the 50th anniversary, mm. and I had assumed that I'd seen pretty much all of the James Bond films, like I could name all of them and so on, and when we were there, there was a whole bunch of props that I just didn't recognise, and so my husband challenged me and said, I don't think you've seen as many as you think you have. <laughs> So we bought the box set of however many it was at that stage. I think there was only one Daniel Craig out. And uh, we watched one a fortnight for for the year and we wrote, you know, amusing discussion uh, reviews of them. And it was really interesting because what we discovered is that uh, watching Roger Moore in particular when you're in your 30s in the 21st century is very different from watching Roger Moore when you're a young teenage uh in the, say, 1990s, uh, I don't think my husband stayed awake through any of the Roger Moore films. I'm not surprised at all. He was Bono. They were just so awful. Yeah, he was Bono. Bond in name only. It was, uh, they were appalling. So, yeah, it was a really fun project, actually. Yeah, uh, it sounds so like... So now I definitely have seen all of them in order. Yeah. <laughs> have you seen the latest one? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah, I quite liked it. Yeah, I didn't it's mind it. It's not the best, but, um, yeah, I, I didn't mind it. No, that, that's cool, yeah, and I'm just back from doing Tasmania, the land of two-headed cannibals and all sorts of other things, and inbred, <laughs> inbred sociopaths and... and apple, all the other stereotypes. All the other stereotypes. We actually went past the place where 
Uh, I think it's called Black Bob's was the family name. We went past the place where apparently an inbred bunch of people of very nasty natures lived. So that was um, right, a little great. bit interesting. Between that and eating scallop pies, we were doing pretty well with the... Very good. And also, because we're doing... I should mention that we're doing Poseidon Adventure from 1972 mm-hmm. and The Towering Inferno. My two trips across in the ferry <laughs> give me a little bit of perspective on at least the first one of those. Absolutely. Okay, so what have you been watching? Well, I'm very excited because this week I finally got to see Thor Ragnarok. Yay! And it was fantastic. It's definitely the best of the three Thor films, I think. Uh, and it, when in the one of the first fight scenes, uh, Led Zeppelin's Immigrant Song started up, I was very excited. I thought it was a very appropriate moment. So, yes, I loved Thor Ragnarok. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also just uh, re-watched all of the Men in Black films because they were on Netflix and we needed something light and fluffy to watch. Uh, and the first one in particular, I think, stands up remarkably well. Mm. Um, yeah, the third, really. not so much for me. I, I really didn't like them for, for several yeah. years. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't mind them. They're still enjoyable, fluffy movies, but they don't have the same um, grab as the first one does, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sometimes sequels tend to be a bit of cash cows. You know, they've got a franchise. Yeah. They want to make money out of it, so they'll just throw something together and knowing they will make yep. money out of it. Yep, and that's probably the case in these ones. But, you know, they're, they're not bad stories and and some of the, the – vil- I actually quite like the villain in the third one. I'm a bit of a fan of Jermaine, so yep. – I mean, it's not a great film, but um, it's kind of fun to watch. Uh, the other thing, the other TV that I've watched is I finally watched the first season of Winona Earp. Okay. And it, I, it's it's hilarious. It's a lot of fun. It's kind of mm, outback Western yeah. uh, America with uh, that kind of Buffy feel, really. Or not that I've actually watched Buffy, but uh, yeah, it, that was a, a lot of fun and I really enjoyed it. So I'm looking forward to watching season two. I've seen the first episode, but I've actually got the DVD of the first season. Yep. So it's on my enormous pile of stuff to watch, <laughs> along with miscellaneous kung fu movies, Japanese manga, uh, Japanese kaiju movies, and all sorts of other rubbish. Yeah. Got piled up there. Anything else you've done? Uh oh, and we finished watching the second season of The Expanse. Oh, I love The Expanse. Yeah. Avasarala yeah. is fantastic. I want to be Avasarala when I grow up. That's one of my hopes and dreams. It's not a bad ambition to have. You can swear at mm. people and boss them around and do the right thing. And be in charge without anybody knowing that you're in charge. That's what really appeals to me. Yeah. What I've been watching, on the ferry going to Tasmania, which takes nine hours, <laughs> we did it during the daytime because we wanted to actually see the ocean. Yep. I watched Kingsman, The Golden Circle, the second one of the Kingsman. Oh, movie. right. And I, it was Okay. Um, one of the problems I had is Poppy, the villain, played by Julianne Moore. Mm. There's really a kind of underlying sexism and, and slight misogyny toward her, even though, of course, yep. she's given a, people a whole bunch of really addictive drugs that only she has a cure for. So the whole world's basically anybody who's done illicit drugs is about to die unless she does something. There's right. still There's still a kind of weird misogyny about it. I'd have to watch it again on something that's not rocking mm. to really nail that down. But it, it kind of disappointed me because I'm a big fan of Julianne Moore. I've got a crush on her as well, which is <laughs> and um, And that kind of knocked it on the head for me a little bit. Mm. 
and there, there wasn't really too much new there. Uh, the other thing was I walked from Hobart to North Hobart, which is a two-kilometre uphill walk, which wow. was a little bit daunting, and saw Murder on the Orient Express with Kenneth Branagh and oh, Michelle wow. Pfeiffer and Willem Dafoe and all and those other actors. a million in. other people. <laughs> yeah, I went up to a uh, nice little kind of art house cinema they've got up there Yeah, and watched that. About 20 minutes after the yes vote came through, we could talk about the yes huh. vote. Um, yeah, Australia has had a survey to say, yes, we approve of marriage equality. And now we've got a few battles going on on whether people are allowed to be prejudiced against gay marriage and all sorts of things like that. But Australia voted and 61% of us said, yes, let's be fair to everyone. Which was a good thing. So about 20 minutes after that, I saw Murder on the Orient Express. And I liked it. <laughs> Kenneth Branagh is a very good Poirot with the good. best moustache in the world. <laughs> He's got the best moustache since Kurt Russell in The Hateful Eight. It really <laughs> is a work of art. And um, he actually brings a little bit of compassion and depth and humanity to Poirot, <laughs> which is usually lacking in those kind of adaptations. It's all about the puzzle and all about the suspects and that kind of thing. Yep. But the ensemble works really well, uh, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, I, I don't know whether I can really compare it with the original one from 1974, but uh, both of the films are good, and I enjoyed this one a lot, just hanging out there. Uh, the other two things I've seen is Sally and I saw Justice League. Oh, right. Uh, How was it? In Launceston. Um, it would have been a, a lot of people have said this, so I'm actually m- mimicking a lot of people when I say this. It would have been a fantastic superhero movie in 2005. Uh. It really is looking over its shoulder or looking forward to what Marvel does mm. and not quite understanding how Marvel does what it does. And um, that's that's a big problem. It's got a CGI vil- villain, which is never a good thing. Ooh. And whose only thing is he's pissed off with her, so he wants to terraform it into his home planet. <laughs> um, you've got the Flash, you've got Aquaman, you've got Batfleck um, and Wonder Woman, and Gal Gadot gets maybe two good scenes in it. Mm. Mostly put in there because of the wild success of Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman movie. Yep. But uh, which is a bit disappointing, and one of the things you can't overcome is, yes, we all know Superman's back in it because it's on half of the posters. Henry Cavill was working on another movie when they did the reshoots, so they had to CGI the moustache he grew for the other movie out of the movie. <laughs> and it's a little bit obvious in certain scenes that they've CG'd his upper lip. Wow. And it kind of makes him look like either he's just had really a lot of dental surgery... Or just, you know, someone Botoxed his lips while he was asleep as a joke. Wow. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's people will see it, and it'll probably make money, but I really think that Warner Brothers are going to have to rethink the way they approach the franchise and find something new that hasn't been done by the other mob before. And the other thing I see, which I sat down with Sally to see, I'd seen it at the cinema, but she hadn't, was... Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets, Luc Besson oh, movie. I haven't seen that yet. I'm very excited to do so. I won't do a spoiler for you, but I liked it. <laughs> I liked it more in the second thing. There's a montage at the start with David Bowie's Space Oddity where they show you the astronauts from Apollo Soyuz meeting up as the two spaceships link up back in the mm. 80s. 
and then they go all the way into about 300 years in the future when they're doing first contacts. Cool. It was a montage, and it's great. People said that Dane DeHaan and Carla Devine aren't very don't have a great chemistry as Valerian and um, Loreline, the girlfriend. But it, it kind of worked for me the second time I saw it. The worlds created by Luc Besson and his team are fantastic. It's a future you want to live in. It's got tons of alien races all living on the one space station. Approximately, yeah, several thousand alien races in all sorts of environments. It's got some really cool and weird technology. Um, and there's a mystery that has to be solved as well. A lot of science fiction movies, particularly action-based ones, don't give you anything meaty. But this one gives you a little bit of a mystery to solve, mm. which is kind of cool. And, and it worked for me uh, pretty well. Uh, I found out when we were going to watch Valerian that tomorrow for the ABC radio gig I do with ABC Darwin, we're doing The Fifth Element, the other Luc Besson science awesome. fiction. So I've got to re-watch The Fifth Element tonight and have a bit of fun with that. But, uh, yeah, uh, I like Luc Besson as a director and as a writer and producer, but I don't know if he plays well to Anglophone audiences as well as he does to French-speaking audiences. There's something cultural there that some people miss. Mm, the Fifth Element is probably one of my very favourite movies of all time. Oh, it's a great fun, and you can re-watch it and still see little bits of stuff you missed the first time around, yeah. or the second or third time around. But uh, yeah, uh, Valerian and The Fifth Element, fantastic double feature. Yeah. So, um, we'll take a minor break now, and, <laughs> and then we'll talk about the Poseidon Adventure from back, way back in 1972. What is it, Lookout? I never saw anything like it. An enormous wall of water coming towards us. In the early morning hours of New Year's Eve, Gene Hackman, Ernest Borgnine, Red Buttons, Carol Lindley, Roddy McDowell, Stella Stevens, Shelley Winters, Jack Albertson, Pamela Sue Martin, Arthur O'Connell, Eric Shea, and Leslie Nielsen were aboard the SS Poseidon when it was hit by a 90-foot tidal wave. Oh, my God. And capsized. Poseidon Adventure. The most exciting escape adventure of our time. Follow me! It took the lives of the 1,400 people on board and changed the lives of the few who would survive. Climbing to another deck will kill you all! And sitting on our butts is not going to save us either! Don't look down. Who do you think you are, God himself? That's the way out. The combined talents of 15 Academy Award winners bring you Irwin Allen's production of The Poseidon Adventure, a Ronald Neen film coming from 20th Century Fox. You suggested we do um, disaster movies, Alex. What's your love of yes. disaster movies about? Well, my love of disaster movies actually began with Poseidon Adventure. Oh, cool. Um, I think I was probably 
maybe 10 or 12 when Poseidon Adventure was on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a feeling it might even have been one of those Friday evenings on the ABC introduced by that fabulous man who was mostly bald, and I don't remember John what his Hyde. name was. Was it John Hyde? Yes, yeah. yes, uh, who also introduced me to the Carry On films when I was young and impressionable. <laughs> um, so, yes, I, I think my love of disaster movies does date back to the Poseidon Adventure. Um, there is just something really fun for me in a bizarre sort of way, just watching how people deal with catastrophes mm. and seeing how um, I'm, I'm not particularly interested in the, in the relationships that happen outside of what's going on with the disasters. Yeah. Um, for me, that's one of the big differences between uh, those two uh, Meteor movies from about, what, 20 years ago now. Yeah. Um, the, the, the great one with Bruce Willis and the terrible one with Frodo the Hobbit. Um, yeah. One was really interested in the disaster. Mm. The other one was interested in the people and so I'm like, I don't care about the people. I want to see things being destroyed yeah. and I want to see people overcoming that problem. Yeah, that was Armageddon and Deep Impact. Yeah, I yep. blocked Deep Impact from my mind. I saw Armageddon on the 4th of July in California when it first came out. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really a weird experience. The cinema was half empty because everyone was with their family on the 4th of July. Yeah. And I was kind of in between places I was staying with for the fan fund I was over there with. And so I, I watched it and thought, yeah, there's lots of stuff blowing up here, but I don't really care the fact that Bruce Willis is trying to stop his daughter from sleeping with Ben Affleck. That part of it didn't grab me at all. No. Because I, I always find it squeamish, those kind of guys protecting their daughter's sexuality. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For me, that was problematic. But, uh, yeah, disaster movies. Poseidon Adventure, yeah. I saw in the cinemas. That's how many birthdays I've racked up. Yep. And um, it was crazy popular here in Australia. Uh, it was showing, I think, at the Plaza Cinema in Sydney and stayed there for a ridiculously long time. So the story is fairly simple. Uh, the Poseidon's a, a ship on its last voyage. The owners, the new owners of the ship, haven't done their due diligence and put enough ballast in it. And the ship is heading from New York to Greece, and uh, it's off the coast of Crete or somewhere like that. There's an enormous mm-hmm. earthquake, and a tsunami wave hits the ship and tips it upside down. A bunch of survivors, led by Gene Hackman's Reverend Scott have to find their way to the bottom of the ship and the propeller room in order to have the best chance of surviving. Um, One of the things, and you're a person of faith, so I know this, and I'm not Mm going to insult you. Mm. What did you think of Reverend Scott's kind of testosterone theology? Oh, he's a heretic, and I mean that in the most religious way possible. Yeah. Like with his sermon and so on, I was just sitting there saying, no, no, the other fella, he's right. You are a heretic. <laughs> yeah. You are not talking about my faith at all. Yeah. I just found that really fascinating, actually, as a uh, – I mean, I, I was interested to see that it was based on a novel, which I didn't realize yeah. uh, until I saw the start. Um, it's just a really interesting – choice actually because he doesn't have to be a priest for the role that he plays um and i don't know that it i don't know that it actually adds anything particularly interesting to his character overall but anyway it's 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 a choice so yeah Yeah, they're not they're only about two or three really likable characters in the movie which is yeah but yeah i mean gene hackman in there he'd just come off 
winning the Oscar for The French Connection after about a decade of being a character actor in minor roles. Hmm. And he's, he's got a kind of intensity and a nastiness that yep. really takes you out of the film. I, don't, uh, the, I did read up a little bit about the novel by Paul Gallico, and there's some really crazy crap in there. <laughs> um, like the character of Susan, played by Pamela Sue Martin, teenage girl, in the book she gets raped on the way out of the <gasps> ship. And the other thing, and her, her little kid brother dies. This is in the book. Wow. The other weird thing is Linda, the ex-sex worker wife of, of the Ernest copper, Bur- of the copper played by Ernest Bergwine. She's played by Stella Stevens. Actually, sleezes up to the Reverend in the book. Wow. So the screen um, writers Sterling Silliphant and Wendell Mays, who are very good screenwriters, they've got fantastic credits behind them, including In the Heat of the Night and Anatomy of a Murder and all sorts of classic films like that, took out all that shit and decided yeah. they were going to keep it down to the small ensemble cast, put problems in front of them on how to get out of the film, and it worked. Uh, I don't think it works quite as well for me as um, The Towering Inferno, but no. still, there are characters you like there. Uh, Leslie Nielsen playing the captain was a, an <laughs> odd one because we know Leslie Nielsen mostly for his post flying high slash yes. plane roles. So you expect him to come out with a one-liner, but he's actually in a serious role as the captain yep. of the ship. It's a bit like when you see Forbidden Planet and you expect him to crack up in Forbidden Planet. It's a number- <laughs> It was a great career move for him to go into comedy. Yes. But when you re-watch his older roles, um, yeah, there's, a, there's a disconnect there where you're waiting for the punchline. Which character should we talk about? Uh, well, I have to say, my enduring memory of this film is Val. Yeah. Um, Bell. I, uh, the, yeah. Uh, is it Val and Manny? No, Bell, Bell and Manny. Bell. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, so, uh, and in my head, her name was Hattie. I don't know where I got that from. And I was watching the film, going, "Oh, her name's wrong." Yeah. Anyway, um, my enduring memory was of her and her epic swim yeah. and. I was delighted to rediscover her actually and just how how wonderful she is and their relationship which is just gorgeous. Yeah. Um, th- they're definitely Capagone, my favorite right, part. Yeah, yeah older George Capagoni yeah. was right to visit the grandson. Yeah. And Belle is interested in people you can tell that when they're doing the captain's table thing. She's mm. interested in people and she's interested in bringing people into the conversation and and kind of looking after other people. Yep. But she's very self-depreciating as well because she's older, she's overweight, and she's got that thing going. But then as things go on, and she doesn't think she can climb the enormous Christmas tree to get out of the main ballroom after the ship's capsized, she doesn't think she can squeeze through various holes, even though they're much larger than she is. Mm-hmm. But then she has this moment where she saves everyone. And yeah. it's brilliant, and it's tragic at the same time. And Shelley Winters... Uh, who was part of the actor's studio in the 50s when she was much younger and slimmer and people tried to fit her into those kind of sex pot roles so she didn't want to do that as an actor. Um, it's brilliant there. She plays the whole arc of the character wonderfully and, mm. yeah, you've got to love the character. And she's the one character really in the movie that you have the most affection for. Definitely. Yeah, I think she's just glorious. Tough chicks are always good in this kind of movie. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
But she, and like you said, she's actually also very well rounded. You know, she has a good relationship with her husband. She's interested in trying to help other people. All of those sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's a well written character from that point of view, and and yep. feels very lived in. Mm. Whereas the Gene Hackman role, it's Gene Hackman playing large, and yeah, um, kind of you know playing the alpha male and. Between him and Ernest Borgnine, another character actor who can do comedy roles. I mean, he was in Mikhail's Navy Forever in the 1960s doing comedy mm. stuff. But he could play villains, he could play heroes, he, he could play the most sadistic bastards in the world. Or he could play incredibly likeable characters. And um, I don't think his character was particularly well written either. Uh, he's made- no, I found him less annoying than Gene Hackman's character. Mm. Um, possibly just the difference between what you would expect from a priest and what you would expect from a New York cop, I guess. Um, but he's very much one note, very, very one dimensional. Yeah, whereas Stella Stevens, who was good in a number of dramatic roles during her career as well as the comedy stuff she did, was kind of interesting as Linda. She, you know, she told her husband off when she needed to. And, yep. and yet she's got a kind of reticence because of her past. Mm. And I think that even though that wasn't a, a deeply written role, I think Stella Stevens did a pretty good job on it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So, what else have we got to say about this one? Because um, uh, I was interested thinking about it from a generic point of view mm. um, about how often it's, it's so often, in fact, almost always, I guess, disaster movies set up the tragedy in the very first moment, you know, yeah. if it's going to be about a volcano, a kid's doing a project about a volcano or if it's <laughs> or whatever else. And here you've got, oh, we've just had a warning about seismic disturbance, mm. you know, and we know that there's not enough ballast on the ship. Like in the first five minutes, you're like, oh, I know it's going to happen here. Yeah. And, and so the whole time, because it's a, you know, it's a relatively long movie, although not as long as Towering Inferno. Yeah. Um, you're just waiting for that moment where things are going to go to hell and then it's very much a two-act kind of thing, a disaster film that's pre and post. Yeah. I mean, and I was just really interested to see that kind of in this so uh, such an early film of, of kind of classic um, but, um, modern disaster films. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's one of those things where um, it's it's like that you mentioned the disaster movies Armageddon and Deep Impact. You got to have somebody looking through a telescope at the start of them mm-hmm. to see the meteor coming. So, yeah. Um, you yeah you, you there's nothing there's no real surprises in the in this kind of movie apart from the fact that some of the people are going to die but you don't know which ones. Yeah. Yep. And one of the things Sally and I watched this together the other night. And one of the things we decided was that Irwin Allen, the guy who produced it and who was the producer of things like Lost in Space and the Time Tunnel and all those TV series in the 60s, really didn't like couples because inevitably (laughs) he'd knock off one of the couple, one member of a couple in these movies. And like, okay, yeah, so we're not going to let any couple survive intact. Uh, They do it a little bit in Towering Inferno with um, the Paul Newman, Faye Dunaway character. But in general, they tend to, you know, really not like people who are married or in a relationship with each other. What I thought was really interesting is when they're getting out after the disaster and they're climbing up that Christmas tree, is that almost everybody was paired up at the start. Mm. And the one person who was not 
paired up, I looked at him and said, you might as well be wearing a red shirt, mate, because <laughs> you are clearly not going to survive because you are unpaired. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. You know, this is clearly about destroying people's lives and so on. But, um, yeah, like the, basically the first person to that you have any emotional attachment to to go is the unpaired one. So, that's yeah, Rodney Dow's character, isn't it? Uh, it was Ackers. Yeah, uh, Rodney McDowell. Yeah, yes. That, yeah. Yeah, he was it. just a servant anyway. You know. Well, yeah, and that's it. That's the other thing, isn't it? You know, he was uh, dispendable, uh, expendable. Yeah, I liked Rodney McDowell as an actor. Uh, apparently, he was a very nice person. He knew everyone's secret in Hollywood, <laughs> but he didn't tell anybody any of the secrets. Cool. <laughs> and he was also a fantastic photographer. If you look at his photography of, um, of actors and, and other people, he was a really good portrait photographer as well. Right. Mm. Started cool. out as a child actor, moved on, uh, closeted for his entire life until right at the end. Mm. But uh, yeah, he, he was a very, very good at keeping secrets, and people trusted him enormously as well. So he must have been a, a yeah, nice guy. Yeah. But, that's uh, good to know. Uh, yeah, well, uh, that's one of the reasons why I was really unhappy when he did die. I, I knew he would. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought, no, nah, I'm not ruining me. Tell, kill one of these. Uh, kill, one of, kill the little kid. He's a brat. I don't like him. But don't kill oh. Roddy McDowell. Brat kids in movies, in disaster movies, Children. always, always oh, survive. I hate it. They always survive, and we never want them to. Yeah, yeah. I was watching it, and, oh, look, children. Bet they'll be alive at the end. <laughs> Ugh. Yeah, so, um, but that's what the other thing, too, is, you know, the women all wearing ball gowns, and they had to divest themselves of the ball gowns. <laughs> and Stella yes. Stevens doesn't have anything under, underneath it, so she ends up wearing her, uh, her husband's shirt for the whole movie. Yeah. Um, I think Owen Allen liked women's legs because there's a woman in Tarangaferno who gets the same bare-legged kind of thing. Yep. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things where you watch it for several reasons. You watch it for the characters. You watch it to see the special effects which, apart from the model work on the ship before it tips upside down, is pretty good in this one. Yeah, I thought that the um, that the flooding waters rushing through the corridors was um, really quite well done. Yeah, they found actually... found that really quite believable. The big ballroom was a really weird set that they did on and at the studios mm. because what they did was they dressed the set so that when it was right way up, they had everything there, and then what they did was took out everything inside the set and nailed it to the ceiling or put it upside down for when it tipped. And they had a whole bunch of forklifts under the set so they could tip it to about 30 degrees with wow. a whole bunch of forklifts so that when people are sliding around as the boat capsizes, yeah, the um, actors and stunt people could actually realistically slide. Wow. So there was a lot of work done there. And then, of course, there's the dump tanks to dump the water in and the flooding. Uh, a lot of the actors did a lot of their stunts, particularly the underwater stuff, hmm. which was pretty good. Apparently, Shelley Winters was really good at doing the underwater stuff well, on that long passage where they've got to go about you know, 30 feet or something like that underwater. Hmm. Uh, and it, it's one of the things you notice in these movies, too, is when there is a stunt person, they don't particularly look like the actor. <laughs> yep. So if you can get a scene with the actor themselves doing the stunt, it just it adds that verisimilitude to the things. Mm. Yeah. Um, what did you think about the theme song, you know, the morning after kind of thing? Uh, to be honest, it just didn't stick with me at all. <laughs> oh. um, 
yeah, it it was just present and didn't have any impact. So. Yeah, yeah. One one of the things I kind of thought of was if this movie had been made in the eighties, there would have been a kind of montage of people getting ready to go and some kind of power yeah. ballad. Yeah, absolutely. Same with the Towering Inferno. After the Towering Inferno, there would have been a power ballad about firemen. (laughs) Instead of the um, We May Never Love Like This Again kind of thing that we ended up getting in it. But Yeah. yeah, uh, This could have worked really well with a montage of people packing and then getting onto the ship accompanied by a suitably impressive song. Or the theme from The Love Boat. Well, that's a possibility. <laughs> Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, I, I think the movie works well because there are a couple of characters that we like. Yeah. Uh, mostly Manny and Belle. Gene Hackman, I didn't particularly care when his character eventually did the heroic thing towards the end. No, I didn't like him in the slightest. I didn't like his relationship with Susan, the young woman. Yeah. I didn't like his treatment of everybody else. Um, I just, yeah. It just didn't work for me at all. Yeah. Then you got the other characters in the red buttons playing the guy with the vitamins. He's hilarious. He is, and he's kind of polite, and yeah, you can tell he, he kind of likes Carol Lindley's character, but it's not age appropriate. Yeah. So he yeah. helps her, but he doesn't sleaze on her. Yes, and he's beautifully patient too. It was the thing I really noticed about him is yeah. it was take one more step, take one more step. Mm. Um, and I think it really worked for him as a character, particularly because he was so different mm. from Hackman and Borgnine's characters. Yeah, he wasn't part of the pissing contest. No. <laughs> and and that kind of works for me. I, I was reading up on Red Buttons, interesting actor. He started out in vaudeville. He did one of the last vaudeville shows that New York did. And he won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in a Marlon Brando movie called Sayonara. Wow which is about American soldiers in Japan after the war. So, you know, he had chopped... He could do the comedy stuff, and he he did some really funny comedy monologues as a part of his career. But the thing he's most well-regarded for was was character roles like this, where he kind of stepped out of his comfort zone and brought us interesting, humane characters. Yeah, right. So I like him for that. I I like it when comedians do serious acting really well and it doesn't happen often enough and yeah. and then some of them like Adam Sandler did Punch Drunk Love and he was good in that but mm. then he retreated from that because the money was in the comedy stuff mm. and you kind of lose respect for somebody who, who does that yeah so anything else you want to say about uh, the Poseidon adventure before we go on to things more fiery um I mean, it's a disaster movie and all, but I just thought the final rescue was so unlikely. Mm. I thought that was a bit ridiculous. But yeah, you've got to have a rescue, though. You got to, I, I understand it has to be a rescue, yeah. but the timing is just ludicrous. <laughs> I agree. You know, tapping on the hull and that kind of thing. Uh, uh, there, oh, you're the only... Yeah. yeah, there was a sequel, Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, 1979. Yeah. With, I haven't got around to seeing that. I saw it years ago, and it really slipped out of my memory. I know it's got Michael Caine in it. Right. And, and Telly Savalas and people like that. And then they did a television movie on it in 2005. Yeah. And a feature film of it in 2006. Wow. All of which sank without a trace. That's r- remarkable. Yeah. So um, people tried to resurrect the franchise, but it really didn't work. Disaster movies have kind of moved on to bigger things 
in the time since then, destroying planets and, and stuff like that. Mm. But anyway, we'll take another break, and then we'll get on to The Towering Inferno from 1974, starring Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, Faye Dunaway, William Holden, Fred Astaire, Jennifer Jones, and a fire. Steve McQueen and Paul Newman race against time as one tiny spark becomes a night of blazing suspense. The Towering Inferno. It's out of control. It's coming your way. Warner Brothers and 20th Century Fox present Irwin Allen's production of The Towering Inferno. McQueen, Paul Newman, William Holden, Faye Dunaway, Fred Astaire, Susan Blakely, Richard Chamberlain, Jennifer Jones, O.J. Simpson, Robert Vaughn, and Robert Wagner, The Towering Inferno. Those people are going to die up there. Something's not done. You can stop worrying about me. What about me down there worrying about you? I'll never let you go anywhere without me again. I'll be back with the whole fire department. The Towering Inferno. Set me down on the seat of the elevator. Now, the producer of the Poseidon Adventure brings you more spectacle, more stars suspense than you've ever seen in one motion picture. Steve McQueen is the fire chief. Paul Newman is the architect. Step by step. Floor by floor. This is a race against time to save hundreds of people trapped in a night of blazing suspense as the world's tallest building becomes the towering inferno. Inferno. Okay, we move on to the Towering Inferno. Apparently there's a band called Towering Inferno as well, according to Wikipedia. (laughs) Let me see what I can find out about the band, because I'm intrigued now. An English experimental musical duo, notable for their solo album album, Kaddish, which reflected on the Holocaust. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, 1985 to 1999. Okay, so we'll ignore them now. Uh, yeah, this one was actually based on two different novels, The Tower by Richard Martin Stern and The Glass Inferno by Thomas N. Scorcia and Frank M. Robinson, both of whom wrote science fiction as well. Hmm, so, interesting. So what happened was there was a fight over which movie would get made first and Irwin Allen decided to get um, 20th Century Fox and Warner Brothers to collaborate on it for the first time ever. They'd never wow. done a joint movie. So uh, it's got a screenplay by Sterling Silverfant, who did the screenplay for In the Heat of the Night, which won an Oscar. Uh, this one got a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Picture and was the highest grossing film released in 1974, which is pretty good going because there were Bruce Lee kung fu movies at that stage. Mm. Uh, the cast includes William Holden, Faye Dunaway, Fred Astaire, Susan Blakely, Richard Chamberlain, O.J. Simpson, Robert Vaughan, Robert Wagner, Susan Flannery, Gregory Sierra, Dabney Coleman, 
and stars Paul Newman and Steve McQueen. Did you hear about the rivalry between those two guys in this film? No. It's stupid. Really? It's deeply stupid. And again, it's a pissing contest. <laughs> um, Paul Newman and Steve McQueen were big box office stars at the time. Mm. And Steve McQueen, for some reason, decided that he had to have everything equal. So if you look at the their names when they appear on the screen... Steve McQueen's is on the left slightly down, and Paul Newman's is on the right slightly up. So if you read from left to right, Steve McQueen gets top billing. But if you read from <laughs> top down, Paul Newman gets top billing. <laughs> so they had to get exactly wow. the same money. And because of Steve McQueen's insecurity and probably marijuana use, they had to have exactly the same number of lines in the film. <gasps> wow. So there was all of that kind of stuff going on, uh, which in spite of that, I think the chemistry between them was kind of okay. Oh, I think they're fabulous together, actually. They, yeah. Yeah, they were fabulous together, and um, that's why kind of Paul Newman doesn't talk so much in the second half of the film, hmm. because all of his lines are at the front, because he's playing the architect, Doug Roberts, who designed the enormous 138-story glass tower in San Francisco, and of course a, a place that's prone to earthquakes is always a good place to build a good building, a big building like that. So he's, um, just as the opening's about to occur, he finds out that um, the owner's, James Duncan's son-in-law, the owner's played by William Holden, son-in-law played by Richard Chamberlain, uh, cut corners on the wiring for the building. And there are short circuits happening and, and circuit breakers going off everywhere and sparks flying. And um, nonetheless, they've got to go ahead with the opening of the building. Uh, all of the VIPs go up to the promenade deck at the top of the building and it catches on fire. And shit gets serious. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Uh, so just talk to me a little bit about what you like about this movie, Alex. Um, I, I, I get, this is probably the second disaster movie that really sticks in my mind. And I remembered very little of it aside from Redford and, and McQueen. Yeah. Um, I loved this movie so much more than I had thought that I would on a rewatch. Yeah. Um, and the, for me, the Poseidon adventure pales in comparison. Although I think there are some really interesting comparisons between them, which I think we should talk about. Yeah. Um, I think it's, um, Real, I think the, the development of the characters is really fascinating, and again, it's that ensemble. Um, and but there's a whole bunch more likable characters in this film, which I appreciated. Um, and given, I mean, it's set really just in one building; it's on a number of different floors. Mm. But again, like what I think is a good disaster movie, and I think like Poseidon Adventure, it still feels quite constrained. You know, it's a, it's a limited space that you're working in, and I think that gives does some really interesting things for for the development of the characters and for what they're able to do and those sorts of things so um i i, I really loved it and i i think it's i mean it's a lot about redford and mcqueen i i just feel like it's a it's not redford, got this it's really newman and mcqueen ah, newman sorry I said that earlier I too, want, sorry. I want somebody later on to tell us off for it. So uh, it's because i got Butch Cassidy on my mind. Okay, um, they've right. just got quite the little bromance going by the end of it, yeah. you know. Um, I, you wouldn't – I wouldn't guess that they had on, scene, on, on set um, 
uh, rivalry yeah. based on uh, based on how well they are they were working together, uh, particularly towards the end. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Um, well, that's one of the things I, I discussed with Sally because again we watched this movie together, and I said that there are two kinds of rivalries amongst actors in movies. There's a kind that takes away from the chemistry and takes away from the film, and you can mm. tell they don't like each other. And there's the ones where it makes both of them up their game to try to yep. be as good as they possibly can so the other person doesn't look as good. And I think that McQueen and Rev, uh, sorry, Newman, you got me saying, <laughs> thank you. Um, Newman and McQueen did the latter. They really yes. kind of upped their game. And Newman was a guy who kind of, in some movies, just mugs his way through it and kind of floats on his charisma. Mm. But in this one, particularly, there's the relationship between him and Faye Dunaway's character where she wants her career to continue, but they want to be together, and they've got some difficulties with that. Um, Unfortunately, it resolves in his favour. But uh, Susan Franklin, her name is, so we've got to give everyone their names. Mm -hmm. Then we've got Fred Astaire playing a con man who's conning Jennifer Jones' character, Alyssa who's rich. And um, Fred Astaire's kind of cool in that because he's Fred Astaire. Yeah, I was looking at him thinking, you're really familiar, and I saw Fred Astaire's name in the cast, but really, are you Fred Astaire? Because I just hadn't seen him in anything where he had aged so much, I guess. But yes, he's pretty cool. And I really like old people romance, Mm. old in Hollywood terms, they're not that old, but... Uh, yeah, I thought that was really cute, actually. <laughs> okay, one of the things I get distracted by in movies from the 1970s, and, and this is a character flaw of mine that I'm fully willing to admit, <laughs> comb over hairdos and wigs. Ugh. And wigs. And Fred Astaire's yeah. wig doesn't do him any service. No, I just thought he looked odd. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's not a good fit. So that's just a side issue. And if you have a look at some of the character actors and some of the smaller roles, mm. um, you do get some, some pretty impressive comb overs. Oh, yes. But, um, and of course, people have to die in this movie, and they have to die. One of the things they do is it's not just the nasty people who die. It's actually people we like. There are a couple of deaths where I was like, are you kidding me? Some of those deaths were just, I don't know. I mean, it's a disaster movie and all, but they just seemed unnecessary. And I think it was because... I actually had more of a, an emotional attachment to them, mm. and so they were much more affecting than most of the deaths in Poseidon Adventure, actually. Absolutely. The one that got me, and it's because I, partly because I liked the actor and partly because I liked the relationship in the movie, is Dan Bigler, the PR guy played by Robert Wagner, and his <sighs> secretary, Laurie, who, who you know, neither of them seems to have another partner, so they're not cheating on anyone. They've no. got a hidden romance, and they do seem to have a genuine affection. There's nice chemistry between the actors. Yes. And they, they go off to um, have an assignation and get trapped by the fire. Yep. And that's harrowing. It's just awful. It is. But it, it really ups the ante for the movie. It's the one bit of the movie where you go, shit just got real. Yeah, yeah. There is no possibility of them being rescued now. Yeah, so that, that kind of gives the movie an extra tick and puts it way above beside the adventure, just that bit, because mm. the relationship feels lived in. Yes. Um, yeah. He's trying to protect her from something he can't protect her from. Yeah. Uh, Robert Wagner is an actor I really like anyway. I've liked him for decades. Mm. And Susan Flannery does really well. And the relationship is age-appropriate. Neither yes. of them is young. So it's not yeah. him having a, an affair with a young secretary. She's late 30s maybe, maybe a little older. And mm. he's, he's about the same. So they've got that kind of, And that adds brownie points for me. Yeah, Absolutely. 
Yeah, and, and that one really got to me. And it's not a short thing, it's a prolonged thing. They, mm. they spend the time to show the horror of what they're going through. Yep. Which, which is part of the fact that this is such a long film too, you know, that they're actually taking their time to show all of those aspects yep. as part of the, the story. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole bunch of continuity errors. If you go on IMDb, the movie's <laughs> full of them, but when you're watching the movie, you don't notice them. No, not at all. Yeah. The other person who I didn't like dying was Carlos the bartender. Oh, yeah, that was just so sad. Yeah, I mean, Gregory Sierra, fine character actor who was in Barney Miller and, and TV series like that. You know, really good for character actor, really fun guy when he's on screen. Yeah. And having him die, you go, no, kill some other asshole, please. Yeah, yeah, someone who isn't hasn't just been doing his job and yeah. doing it competently, happily, do kill some of the ones who were incompetent. Yeah, yeah. Richard Chamberlain playing the nasty son-in-law. Ugh. Yeah. Um, Richard Chamberlain always had a face that, that looked weird to me. It's like he's an alien disguised <laughs> as a human being. Yeah. yeah but I liked um, Susan Blakely playing his wife. Yeah, I thought she was a really interesting and quite complex character, with playing both daughter and wife mm. um, and with quite to quite difficult men too. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I really liked the way that she was shown to be trying to walk a line between those relationships and so on. Absolutely. She's um, she was a fine character. She did a number of things, mostly on TV, because when women get more than about 25 birthdays in, <laughs> in movies in those times, they tended to get relegated to TV. But I really liked her as an actor. Mm. Uh, she's in a movie called Displacement this year, so she's still acting, which is good. Wow. Good to see. Um, most of the people in this movie die, are dead now, <laughs> kind of like <laughs> the Towering Inferno. Yeah. But, uh, sorry, uh, Poseidon Adventure. But, yeah, I did like her character because, again, uh, th- even though the, the writing was just competent, there are times when actors bring a lot more than they sh- might to a, mo- to a role like that. Mm. And uh, I also liked a lot of the actors playing the firemen around Steve McQueen's character as well. Don yep. Gordon's in there. He's a character actor who's done a lot of st- stuff. Felton Perry, who was the black fire guy, mm. uh, in there. Uh, even O.J. Simpson does okay, though he doesn't do much with what he's got. Yeah, I thought he was okay, actually. Yeah. Um, you know, later on, he, he went off the rails, of course. But yeah. And Robert Vaughan playing the senator, even though this, he was kind of like <laughs> a glad-handing senator. Yeah. Um, he, he kind of was a man of honour in a weird sense. Mm-hmm. And yep. he was trying to drag the guy off the um, off the bosun's chair and things like that. Yeah. Um, yes, and Jennifer Jones, who was an actor for a very long time, back in the um, 40s and, and the 50s, and then had a career break, uh, and uh, came back for this one film and then didn't act again. Goodness. But uh, I think she was kind of sweet and charming and, and kind of worked. And that's the nice thing about this kind of ensemble film. You get actors of a wide range of ages. Mm, yeah. And, and each person, you know, there are people in any kind of movie like this who are going to cash the check, take the money and not give the movie more than it, they absolutely have to. But I think that in this one, there's a lot of actors who really did bring their A game to it, even mm-hmm. though it was an expensive movie. It wasn't a prestige movie. 
That's yeah, I did wonder about how it was uh, received at the time because it, I, I don't know, it doesn't have the feel of being a, a blockbuster or something. When you said earlier that it was such a high grossing film, I was a bit surprised, I guess, but maybe yeah. that's also a difference of uh, 40 years in yeah. um, it, it film for, expectations. It cost $14 million. Wow. And, and made 10 times that. That's remarkable. Yeah, so it's. But, but you got to remember too that at the time this was state of the art filmmaking. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, it had people in the, the people like William Holden was a famous character yep. director. Uh, I liked William Holden a lot. Apart from anything else, he's got the same birthday as me, so <laughs> you get that kind of weird mental association between you know, uh-huh. actors. And um, every yeah, there are a lot of actors in there that I like. Robert Wagner. Um, I like Susan Flannery a lot playing Laurie. I thought she was really great in a small role. Yep. And uh, McQueen, of course, was great playing working class guys because he, he basically was a working class guy. Mm. He died very early too, Steve McQueen, which is kind yeah. of sad. Um, he was, I think, 50 when he died. Yeah, uh, something like that. Yeah, he um, when he was a young guy, he was working construction and, and tearing down houses and died of mesothelioma from asbestos. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, which is a shame because... He, he could have had a longer career. I mean, he was born in 1930, so had mm. he not had that, there's a potential he'd still be around. Maybe not acting, but still be around. Yeah. And he did have a hell of a charisma. I mean, if mm. you look at him in The Great yep. Escape. I know, he's fabulous. And in any other film like that, you really kind of had the chops there. And Newman was a guy who, who cashed a lot of checks, I'll be honest with you, but... Well, as he grew older and did character roles and maybe wasn't the main focus of movies, he mm. tended to do a lot of things really well. He was in The Colour of Money, Scorsese's movie, with um, mm. Tom Cruise. Right. And acted Tom Cruise off the screen without even trying. <laughs> when Newman really played his A-game, he was really great. Movies like The Hustler. Yeah. He was fantastic in that. But um, he did tend to do a lot of things for the money, which maybe... And, of course, he made spaghetti sauce and gave the money to charity. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and that's what Sally said. She said, well, Steve McQueen didn't make spaghetti sauce. And I went, no, he died. Yeah. But, uh, um, and again, you've got kids in this one, but the kids are a little less obnoxious than the kids. Yeah, I didn't mind these kids, actually. And I thought that the way they were set up early on with the, the deaf mother was a really interesting, just a, a really interesting little character note, too. Yeah, and, and that's one of the reasons, of course, as you said, the, the movie is long. But it, yeah. it didn't feel like an outstatus welcome. I mean, there, no. there, there were always interesting things happening. And just when things settled down for a moment, more shit hits a different fan. Yeah, yeah, you go to a different camera and all of a sudden there's smoke coming out of somewhere where previously there was just yeah. a little hint of fire or something like that. And I like the improvisation aspect of it as well, where, okay, we've got to get these people off, so we'll run a line to another building and try to get them on a bosun's chair across there. Oh, and so there are, horrible to watch. Yeah, and there are people trapped in an elevator that's breaking free from the side of the building, so we've got to get a helicopter up there. Yep. And, and all those kind of improvisation things I really like. It, it's not just by-the-book stuff. Mm. It's, pre- you, it's like working people thinking on their feet to so, solve a problem. Yeah. Here's, here's an interesting thing that I thought of was that, so one similarity and one really conspicuous difference between the two films mm. is that the reason for the disaster in both instances 
is someone's incompetence, so a lack of ballast or poor um, electrical wiring, combined with the basically the demands of capitalism that you make a profit. And I thought that was really fascinating that it's this is not an act of God as you know volcano or whatever is. This is this is sheer incompetence that has caused all of these deaths in in both events. But in the Poseidon adventure, it's the rogue priest or the mm. but the rogue who manages to get everybody out. Yep. But the heroes in the Towering Inferno are people who are hyper competent. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's the sheer I just know what I'm doing in my job of Steve McQueen and and Newman's competence at not just being an architect but knowing how to build stuff and so on mm. that manages to save anybody. And I think it's one reason why I prefer the Towering Inferno. I prefer competence. I enjoy mm. watching competence. So I thought that was an interesting difference between them. Yeah, absolutely. And and what I'm trying, what I was thinking as well is that we probably view this movie differently after nine eleven. Yeah, than, I than wonder how it plays previous, to American audiences. Yeah, than we did before. Uh, that was one of the things Sal mentioned. She said, "Why didn't the buildings collapse? Why didn't the building collapse?" And I said, "We didn't know what happened with that kind of heat in a building before nine eleven. Mm. It was only then we found out that the steel weakens as it gets hotter." Mm. and pancakes on itself and all those other things we know from those horrible videos of 9-11. But I think the movie does have an extra veneer of intensity because of what recent history, fairly recent history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, this movie, I I like it. I mean, I watched it twice in the last year. I got it on Blu-ray about seven or eight months ago and watched it then, and I didn't go ho-hum at all re-watching it seven months later mm. it really you know i went okay well i can see the bits that work the bits that don't work i really like the special effects on the building itself when the helicopter's flying towards it yeah i think for the time the state of the art and the stuff one of the, some of the shots of the building were shots of another building with a matte painting superimposed <laughs> up up the side of it and that worked really well yeah, that really didn't draw attention to itself, even to our eyes now. We were so used to flawless computer-generated imagery. Yeah, there was no point at which I really thought. I mean, aside from the fashion, there was no point at which I thought I am watching such a seventies film. Mm. Um, it all felt really uh, like quite modern, basically. Yeah, and um, that kind of, that's probably one of the reasons why it's so watchable. There are, mm. there are movies from various series. There are even movies from the 90s, which are cringeworthy now because of some sexual politics or just the way people are and, and the jokes yep. that are made, all that kind of thing. But there are movies like this which have got legs because there's something universal and something that doesn't change as culture changes about them, mm. that kind of peril and people helping other people. Yes, absolutely. And, and all of those kind of things really um, make the movie a lot you know, a lot more – we like it a lot more these days, basically. Yep. But this just, does have, have, however, a spectacularly boring opening. It does. Four with, minutes of a helicopter. <laughs> yeah, I the, don't care. Yeah, I'll never watch Blue Thunder because that's all helicopter. I don't mind a helicopter necessarily, yeah. but I don't know who's in this helicopter. I don't know what they're doing. He's just coming home from holidays. Yeah. I don't need four minutes of a helicopter returning somebody that I don't even know yet. 
Yeah, I see a point that they, I mean, if they had had him doing something before he left it on the, I would have been fine with yeah, it. And they introduced the character like that. Yeah. But yeah, it was kind of you know, a helicopter shot of a helicopter shot. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and you got that, and you got the dramatic music in there, and all of that kind of stuff. But uh, there are some other disaster movies that I really wanted to kind of name check before we go too. Mm. Uh, there's a movie. There were two Titanic movies done in the fifties. There right. was a Titanic Amer- American version done in about nineteen fifty-three, which was kind of okay. And there was also a movie, an English version called Night to Remember with Kenneth Moore, done in about fifty-eight. And there's a movie called The Last Voyage, which is an American film set on a, a sinking ship. And the amazing thing about it, it stars Robert Stack, I think, and Dorothy Malone. And the amazing thing about it was they got a, a real ship called the Ile de France and sank it in its shallow waters in the Sea of Japan very slowly so the actors could run up and down the decks while it was flooding, a real ship. <laughs> and if you can see The Last Voyage... Most of the melodrama in it is bullshit. <laughs> but right at the end, you've got actors actually floating in a ship that they're lowering deeper and deeper into the water. And it works wow. fantastically well because of that, because they're kind of wading and, and the decks are tilting and all that kind of thing. And they did it with an entire ship that was on its way to the wrecking yards in Japan. So they, <laughs> they grabbed it for the duration, filmed a lot of their stuff on there. That's they awesome. They couldn't do a lot of the stuff of people actually in the water. Yep. Because there were so many jellyfish in the Sea of Japan, people would have got stung to fuck. So they did it off the coast of America. Okay. Yeah. So have you got any other recommendations for disaster-type films that you really like? Um. Well, I do quite like Armageddon because I really like the idea of you know drilling on um, on a meteor. It's just so ridiculous, and that that the whole film is so completely over the top. But I do have a soft spot for Bruce Willis, yeah. so Armageddon really works for me. Yeah, um, spiky asteroid. Yeah, yeah uh, it's just so dreadful. But again, it's quite an interesting ensemble cast. Like I quite like his drilling crew, yeah. with the exception of the Ben Affleck character. Um, so that so that one's fun. Yeah. Um, I recently saw San Andreas Fault, but I can't recommend that. It's I like The Rock, but that was not a great film. He's got a new movie um, coming out that might be interesting. It's called Rampage. The trailer's just hit on Rampage. And it's based on a platform scrolling computer game from the 1980s. Wow. And you get a giant alligator and you get a giant ape and all sorts of other things that were in oh. the computer game. And it looks like it's going to be one of those dumb, fun movies. You might actually like that. So check out the trailer for Rampage. Wow. Because it looks so stupid. Yeah. It might be a hell of a lot of fun. I did actually see the trailer for the new Jumanji the other day, and that genu- that does look like fun. Yeah. So um, in terms of other disaster movies, though, um, the, well, it was interesting, actually. Though, so we had the two meteor movies quite close together, and then there were the two volcano movies that were relatively close together. I think it was just Volcano with Tommy Lee Jones and, and then Dante's Peak with yeah. – um, Pierce Brosnan. And I didn't mind Dante's Peak, but I haven't watched it that recently, so I don't know whether it's dated terribly. I like Volcano better. Really? Yeah, Interesting. there's a fantastic scene there on the train where the, where the lava's going through the underground train. Oh, and yes. one of the character actors gets to have a heroic moment. And I go, yeah, that really does work for me, even though Tommy Lee Jones 
as a leading man is yeah kind of my like my description of Harrison Ford, Fifty Shades <laughs> of Grumpy. <laughs> yeah, I like Tommy Lee Jones, but I don't, I seem to remember that he just was playing quite an odd role in that film that didn't didn't really work for me. But again, it's been a while since I've seen it, so. Yeah, and it's got Anne mm. Hayes in it, and uh, some, yes. some decent character actors on the side. But yeah, um, I like the idea of a volcano suddenly popping up in the middle of Los Angeles. There's something absolutely about that weird concept that that really draws in. It draws me in. Yeah, but, I mean, I'm sure they're going to be making more disaster movies. There are going to be end of the world movies and all sorts of things like that. Yeah, I hope so. In the future, oh, I was really interesting because uh, I forget who it was, but one of my Facebook friends, a, a person of color posted a still from uh, When Worlds Collide, the old movie where a planet pranks into the Earth and some people escape in a rocket. Oh, right. And they've got a still shot of all the people sitting in in this improvised rocket (laughs) um, waiting to go to the new planet and repopulate it and save the human race and that, and they're all white. Yep, of course. They don't even have black people in the background. Wow. And I thought, yeah, that's something that I hadn't noticed because, you know, being a white person, you sometimes don't notice your privilege. But seeing it from their viewpoint, I went, yeah, even though it was the 1950s, I know a number of 1950s movies where they at least acknowledge the existence of other races. Yes. There may be people in the background, there may be minor characters who get a couple of good lines in there or something like that who are people of colour or of other races. But this one, they really dropped the ball on. Yeah, it made me kind of notice that. Now, I may well like that movie a little bit less because of it. Yeah, I think it's always interesting to have those sorts of um, those sorts of problems pointed out and uh, to see how much that had an, an impact. So, that, yeah, I mean, that's just disappointing. That, uh, oh, that was the other thing I was going to mention, and you brought me around to it when we were talking about um, Shurya Dushlu in The Expanse. Yep. I saw the Punisher miniseries. Oh, right. Where they, they do some really nice choices as far as the, the nationalities and the racial backgrounds of the actors and the characters. And she plays the mother of the police detective in that <laughs> and does a really great job in there. I like the Punisher. There are a lot of people saying, oh, it's another white man with a gun going crazy. Mm. But they do an interesting thing with it because I watched all 13 episodes. I did my usual Marvel Netflix binge. Yep. And... They deliberately have a subplot with another ex-soldier who is the crazed white guy with a gun. And they make a sharp differentiation between the kind of vigilante stuff that the Punisher does yep. and this other guy. And they, they don't do it just to make him look good. They mm. do it for a purpose saying that people who choose not to access help when it's given... Yep. are making a choice that may lead them down a certain path towards domestic terrorism. Mm. And so I kind of liked it from that point of view because it didn't ignore the problem. It used it as a way of highlighting the importance of getting help. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, and um, it, it's a very gory and violent um, series, and it's probably not for everyone for that reason, but... Uh, I think John Bernthal is a fantastic actor, and I really enjoyed him in that. And the ensemble around him worked really well as well. So, uh, And there isn't a superhero anywhere in it. Even though it's a Marvel movie set in the <laughs> Marvel Cinematic Universe, there is nobody with a superhuman power anywhere in the movie. Right. Or in the series, sorry. Yeah. And and I kind of liked it from that point of view. And also, Shireya Agdashlu, uh, mm. playing, playing a... Um, 
a really well-written character. That's the nice thing about these 13-episode binge-watch Netflix series. Yeah. Even minor characters, you've got the oxygen there to give them a bit of reality and a bit of life. Mm-hmm. And they did that with her as well, even though she's only in about five scenes over the 13 yep. episodes. It worked really well. So um, anything else you're looking forward to watching soon? Um, I don't think we've got any uh, any disaster movies coming out, which is which is a shame. Um, must be time for another double set of I don't know something floods maybe or no, floods lose. are too slow. Yeah. Floods don't yeah. work. Well, you can always do the Christmas viewing of Die Hard. That's true. Mm. Uh, members of my family are in favour of that, so we'll see whether that works. How do you feel again about that? this year? Oh, I'm very much in favour. I'm a you Bruce might Willis be. fan, <laughs> so yeah. yeah. Yeah, and we'll all just sit there quoting all the lines, so it's going to be fantastic if we do it. I've got to tell my Die Hard story again because I've got a new audience for it being you. (laughs) When it first came out on video, we got a a screener copy when I was living in Canberra, and there was a a smug bastard who came to the party we were at watching the movie, and he said, that guy playing the Japanese CEO is Toshiro Mifune. And I said, no, it's not. And he said, it is. And I went, no, it's not, because, you know, you'd never bet with me on movies. <laughs> and he said, how much you want to bet? And I said, well, you know, what do you want? And he says, $500. <gasps> and I, I had, like, 15 bucks in the bank at the time. <laughs> I was quite poor. And so I said, yeah. And this is before you could look things up on the internet. Yeah, I was going to say, this is yeah. pre-IMDB, is, yeah, so this what do you do? Pre-internet. So we watched the whole movie with about eight or ten people around us until the credits scroll up and it brings up James <laughs> Shigata's name. <laughs> and this guy shot himself and he gave me every cent he had, which wasn't $500. <laughs> and so I went out nightclubbing after that with a bunch of friends and shouted drinks. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well done. Yeah, so I really love Die Hard for a number of reasons. I can one of which well is imagine. A, one of which is a, a, let me take a real asshole down a peg or two. <laughs> Uh, anyway, Alex, that's it. Um, thank cool. you very much for being a part of this. It was a oh, lot of Thank fun. you so much for giving me a reason to re- re-watch these films. It was yeah. great. Yeah, and I always like your perspective on things when I <laughs> uh, avail myself via Galactic Suburbia, which you can see at galacticsuburbia.podbean.com, is it? Uh, yes, Galacti Suburbia. We don't have a Galacti. last C. Yes, podbean.com. You'll find it if you do a search on, um, yeah. on iTunes. Anyway, Podbean. Galactic Suburbia. Yeah, because you guys are Hugo winning. You also have a lot of fun. And as I said to Tansy last week, it's therapy for the three of you. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, it's the it's the, the conversations we'd be having if we lived in the same city, yeah. but we don't live in the same city, so we decide to have the conversations and record them, basically. Absolutely, and it's always a lot of fun. And I, even though you guys have no obligation to <laughs> educate me about feminism, <laughs> listening to you does. I'm glad to hear it. That was one of our hopes. Yeah. So thanks again, and. Um, I will get you back when we find something else cool to watch. That would be fun. Let's do it. Great. So that was Alex and I having a good chat on Skype. Uh, there is feedback that I will put into the next Paleo Cinema podcast. Unfortunately, I don't have the resources right now to do it. But anyway, as usual, the Patreon credits. 
By the way, I will be back on the normal schedule for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast after that little break I had in Tasmania. So fear not, it'll happen. Uh, and anyway, thank you for listening. Thank you very much again to the Patreon subscribers. And here now are the credits. And I will be back very soon in a week with a Martian Drive-In podcast, in two weeks with a Paleo Cinema podcast. So take care, and I'll catch up with you very soon. And here are the credits. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, the camera operator, Christopher, the gaffer, Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our set and unit director, Paul, our special effects makeup, special makeup effects director, Tammy, our donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, Steve, our monster effects guy, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Richard H, the set photographer, Mark D, extra, David L, the extra, Richard C, our transportation co-captain, Carrie L, our Tasmanian consultant, and Carrie C, our accountant. We also have Sally, our continuity girl, and of course the other Sally who is always helpful and encouraging and wonderful. So thank you very much to all of the Patreon subscribers. You too can be a Patreon subscriber by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema and donating as little as a dollar per month. 